Come here. No, on the other side. Come over here. Okay. Now, will you will you sing your ABCs for everyone? A B C D H I J Way to go, Nate. Good job. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Dispatch Live. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this musical interlude. Uh, Nate would now like to mess with the lights, so she's having <laughs> to exit. Um, I think he kind of thought that performance, his payment was that he would get to mess with the lights. So if you hear some whining, that's what it's about. Uh, I am Sarah Isger, your host. That was my son, the brisket. And we have Declan Garvey, who runs our The Morning Dispatch newsletter. We have Jonah Goldberg. He does some stuff. I don't really know what, honestly. Like, what does he really do around here? Uh, and then Andrew, who you don't see nearly enough of, um, but Andrew is like our utility player. He reports, he edits, he helps me with the sweep almost every week. Um, Andrew can do it all. And so Andrew, I actually wanted to start with you because you had some fun reporting today, the new lawsuit filed by the Pacific legal foundation about the, uh, Biden student loan forgiveness plan, a whole bunch of lawyers this whole time have been talking about how, yeah, everyone kind of agrees that it's unlawful, but you got to actually get into court and it's been a, like a month now at least, but, uh, someone has it least thinks they have a way to get into court. Right. So yeah, I guess we're, 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 we're crash landing straight into this where we're going, let's do it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the, we, we, we reported a lot. We've talked a lot about, um, uh, Joe Biden's 10,000 to $20,000, uh, per person unilateral student loan forgiveness plan that he justified by saying, you know, it's, uh, it's a pandemic emergency. I have these emergency powers that let me, um, you know, do some cancellation for people who are affected by war or in disaster areas. Uh, and everybody's in a disaster area right now because there was just a global pandemic. So that was the argument kind of going in. Um, obviously, there are a lot of conservative legal groups that want to challenge this on the constitutional merits of the thing of, of Joe Biden making these kind of tax and spend decisions without any congressional input. But as you allude to, the big problem there is uh, that in order to get your grievance before a judge, essentially the very first thing that you have to establish to that judge is that you yourself as the plaintiff in the case have been harmed um, by uh, by whatever the action was that you're suing over. And that's kind of a tricky thing to do uh, in a case like this where, where basically all of the harms uh, that, that a lot of conservatives have been complaining about up until now have been very diffuse, right? It's just been, it's been these kind of very top level, like maybe this is inflationary uh, as far as like the whole economy is concerned. Maybe it, you know, puts more upward pressure on the cost of, of college for everybody else. It's on, maybe it's unfair to everybody who already paid off their loans. Um, but, but you can't just kind of go before a judge and, and say, you know, I'm here on behalf of everybody uh, and expect to get a hearing. So essentially what we, what we saw from this filing uh, that I reported on today 
from the Pacific Legal Foundation. They filed in a federal court in Indianapolis, um, which is where one of their own lawyers works. Um, he himself is the plaintiff in the suit. Uh, and the suit alleges, and it's 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 this very goofy kind of like bank shot way to get in the standing door. Um, but but essentially what he says is in the suit, uh, he has student loans. He's a public service lawyer. So it's not like he's making money hand over fist like he would be uh, if he'd sort of gone big law. Um, there's a program already that's set up where you do 10 years of uh, public service work in any in any kind of like nonprofit field. Um, and at the end of that, if you've been making your minimum payments all along uh, and you're, you can kind of like demonstrate with a paper trail that you've been doing this nonprofit work the whole time, you get your loans forgiven. Um, that's a congressionally uh, created program that already exists. His allegation is that because he lives in a state where, Indiana, where the uh, loan forgiveness from Biden is is going to be taxed as income. Indiana has said that they're going to do that. Um, he actually is going to suffer financial harm overall uh, when it as a result of this this cancellation. He gets money sort of nominally lopped off his total student loan uh, bill, but it doesn't change his payments. He's going to pay the same amount over time for those ten years, and now he gets this this. Uh, like $1,000 tax bill right now. Um, so essentially, he is now able to come before a court and say, look, if Biden had not done this, which I didn't consent to them doing this, this is just kind of automatically credited to me. If Biden hadn't done that, I would not have this new tax bill coming to me. And that's the harm. And that's kind of the toe in the door that once that's been established, essentially, they get to say, okay, uh, you have the standing. And now let's talk about the 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 broader constitutional question, which is what most of the filing, uh, obviously most of the stuff that they they, they, they discuss in the filing is about. Um, but that was kind of the the exciting thing about, about what happened today. That was the thing that the, the guys at the Pacific Legal Foundation themselves were pretty kind of proud of themselves about because there had been this big question of, of whether anybody was going to find standing. And, and, you know, they were the ones who uh, seemingly invented the wheel uh, on, on this particular question. All right. And now we'll hear the ABCs from Jonah. <laughs> a, B, C, D. <laughs> you sort of forget how long that song is by the way it goes you? on for a while really and then when you finally get to the end of the alphabet nope there's two more lines <laughs> <laughs> uh, um i i by the way so andrew has i mean a newish baby um uh, and Andrew, my like thought to you on babies is that I just sort of thought they were in the baby phase for a lot longer than they are. Like the idea of like a two-year-old singing the ABCs is kind of mind blowing to me. Um, and it turns out like two-year-olds can walk and talk and I didn't know any of that. Um, we're all, yeah, we're all learning every day. It's remarkable. My kid's 11 months old and like on the precipice of walking, which is yeah. sort of terrifying because there's a lot more baby proofing that needs to get done around here. She just two days ago climbed the stairs for the or sort of, you know, demonstrated an ability to climb the stairs. We weren't like, all right, see you at the top or anything like that. But, um, but that was sort of frightening and new. So yeah. like the thing is all of you young people um, are going to have to like learn to deal with is like every single huge like milestone in your kids development you're like you cannot wait for it right oh i can't wait till they talk oh i can't wait till they can crawl oh i can't wait till they can you know walk and then within 24 hours of them being able to do these things <laughs> you're like holy crap they can walk <laughs> they, they, she's going mobile you know <laughs> and yeah. you're like freaking out about what they can get into where they're gonna go and like and it's all 
a life lesson and preparing for you, preparing you for when they can drive. And that is utterly and terrifying. And um, did Lucy go for her license as soon as she could get it? Or was she one of those weirdos who like waited? She went pretty much as soon as you can get it in part because of these weird rules. Like if you, she went to a school in Virginia and they have this program that you can do this thing in school. So she didn't have to do driver's ed someplace else or take these. And so anyway, she did it as early as she could. Um, and, uh, um, which is a little, was a little weird. And like for me, like for my wife, you got a driver's license within 45 seconds after the birthday. But like, I grew up in New York city, so I didn't get a driver's license until I think I was 21. And my dad never got a driver's license. Yeah, I don't understand. Anyone who does not know and love the freedom and the solitude of like being in your car by yourself, it might be my favorite place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, so thanks everybody for tuning in. We're done. (laughs) I I, I know know the format right now. I mean, I I, I don't know. I think it's a secret to anybody out there in TV land that we are less prepared than usual. Uh, less prepared than the media and performance for this for this particular dispatch live. I, I was wondering, you know, which means more prepared than almost any other. Yeah, late night. But I wanted to do a little bit more like a PSA style stuff about the thing I was just talking about before because there's been a little a little discourse about it in the comments. Okay, I know we usually do that at the end, but I'm thinking about it right now. Matt asks, uh, and wait, nope, uh, I forget who asked it first. I'm not going to scroll up. Somebody asked. Uh, how do you actually do this thing? Like, is it, do you actually have to go get your student loan money if the Biden uh, pl- plan goes forward? Somebody says, apparently it's a disputed question, but the DOE website, Michael says, uh, mm. the DOE, DOE website says they're going to do it automatically. I just, if any, if, if any, if this is important information out to, to any of you out there in TV land, basically the way it works is uh, it is going to be automatic if the DOE already has your income information on file. Um, so for like the, the plaintiff we were talking about, people who are already in uh, a program like this where you have had to be proving your income to, to DOE for a while already, they probably have your information. If that's not you and you, you're, you're qualified for this thing, you will need to go apply. So don't don't uh, don't walk away thinking like, oh, I'll just kind of wait around for it to happen and eventually the the balance will go down. Um, for the, I think for the majority of people, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, and it's supposed to happen in early October. So it's, um, it's yeah, like. But it, it's like, all about to get enjoined. So no, well, perhaps, yeah, don't worry right, about right. it. But yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't want, I don't want Dispatch Live to be kind of the material cause of anybody thinking, you know, of anybody getting, uh, you know, screwed out of, of, of the program if the program does end up uh, passing legal muster with these challenges we've been talking so, about. So Sarah, I have a question on those for you. lines. The oh, go ahead. Well, I was just. Uh, she immediately went from Egger's brilliant, concise disquisition on the state of this lawsuit to asking me to do my ABCs. Uh-huh. And since you were the, sure if you knew them all, you are uh, fair, fair. Um, ever since I had that micro stroke, micro stroke, I forgot the letter H. It's really complicated. But um, you co-host this legal podcast thing. I assumed you were trying to dodge having an opinion about this, but. Let me put you on the spot the way you did with my alphabet. Do you think this standing thing works? Will this Uh, this hold water? This was always the theoretical way to get in. The question was whether you'd be able to find someone who was going to get granted the relief automatically and was in a state that was going to tax the relief, who was willing to be a plaintiff 
Uh, it was sort of a lot of needles to thread to do that. So yes, although there's, you know, you're getting however many tens of thousands of dollars forgiven and you have to pay a small tax. What's your injury? <laughs> uh, so I, the big question was always though, could you make a plausible standing argument? Because I think most judges will want to find standing in a case where the law itself is sort of blatantly unlawful. I think they have very much cleared that hurdle. But you know, if they play Indianapolis roulette in the federal court and end up with a judge who just really, really doesn't want to find standing or you know, has a long precedent of sort of raising that hurdle a little bit above uh, where it would be normally, I still think there's a chance that they could lose on that. But so many of these other theories like weren't plausible, like no judge could even try, like even squinting, um, say that you had standing here. There is clearly a very plausible argument for standing. Can I, uh, ask, Jonah, can to, I make one to comment? Do some I, very rank pundit outcome. <laughs> Declan hasn't talked Poor at Declan. all. Sorry, I, ahead, Declan. Declan. I haven't Poor talked three. at all. <laughs> Jonah, very rank punditry here. Is it is it better for... Biden and the Democrats in the midterms if this gets enjoined and then they can do the same thing that they've done with the eviction moratorium and all, all these other uh, things where they punt it to the court, the court knocks it down, and then they say, we need more Democrats in office so that we can appoint judges to uh, to push back against these right-wing courts. Because you you see uh, yesterday, the, the Congressional Budget Office came out with its official estimate of how much uh, how much this student loan forgiveness is going to cost? It was something like uh, four hundred and twenty billion dollars over the next ten years, way more than the Biden administration said it would. They haven't actually put a number, but they've said not a lot. Um, and and their argument there uh, yesterday in response to that was that oh, don't worry because the CBO is estimating that people are actually going to take advantage of this, but not that many people are actually going to take advantage of it. <laughs> so it won't actually cost four hundred twenty billion dollars. Meanwhile, on the other side, they're saying. We're we're saving 45 million people, 45 million Americans money on this. Um, and then on the other side, they have to be like, no, it's not. It's actually not that big of a deal. So which which of those arguments would they rather be making over the next couple of months? It's a great question. Um, uh, not to get too meta, but there are two questions embedded in this. What will actually work better for them and what do they think would work better for them? And I suspect they think it would work better for them to just hand out large sums of money to big chunks of their coalition. I think they're very proud of it. I think part of it is like bubble stuff that they actually think um, they wouldn't put it this crassly, but I think they think they're buying people's votes and that it's going to it's going to work, that their their generosity with other people's money is going to be rewarded. Um whether that's the case, I, I don't know. I could talk around our Kentucky Square, but I, I kind of feel like they'd be in better shape politically if it was enjoined a little, you know, a little bit. I don't know. I don't know that that's a thing. Um, but uh um because you want to make people think that there's something on the line for the election. And if people think that they're actually going to vote for getting ten, twenty thousand dollars of their student debt forgiven, I would think that that I think need and desire for the money is a greater motivator than gratitude for having gotten it. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think this one's a close call. Anger is a better motivator than gratitude, yeah. certainly. And so yeah. feeling like you had the money and it was taken away from you, um, I think would be a great motivator. And I I mean, we sort of seen this play out a few times. Yeah, but so, 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 this is a question for the group, but this, this gets this thing that I have trouble trying to parse out in my head, which is like, there's so many of the things that they do, that the Biden administration does that you could make an argument is really tough, hard about, you know, sort of brass knuckle politics kind of thing. But I don't, th- I don't ever get the sense that they see it that way. Um, and it always seems like they think of it as like, they're just these do-gooders doing good things for good reasons, for good people and all that. And so like, I could see if like, if Dick Morris were advising Joe Biden, you could totally see a completely cynical, oh, it's gonna be great. The courts are going to enjoin this. And like, it's going to piss off our base and they're going to turn out to vote and blah, blah, blah. I just don't get the impression that they're actually, they actually think in those cold, hard bitten terms. Am I wrong? No, I think that's right. Um, speaking of questions we have from the audience, uh, Declan, do you have student loans? No, I do not. No. Andrew, I'm guessing you don't. I was never going to qualify for this program under any circumstances because the college I went to doesn't take federal loans. Um, but I oh, graduated. Right. I graduated with like twelve thousand dollars in debt and have since paid it off. Uh, the question was, do either of you expect to get something out of this? But um, no, just a lot of good takes. That's my. That's my. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, debt forgiveness is income. If a state has an income tax, it will be considered income and taxed. Uh, no, because of the American Rescue Plan, there was a <laughs> they included something in there that uh, exempted that from that. Yeah, but so then are- these states have passed a separate taxable um, law to tax this. Yes, there are separately six and simply states. as income. There are six states, one of which is Indiana, which is why that's where they uh, the the PLF filed this suit. I actually don't know which the other five are. I probably should. I wrote about it. Um, But Uh, yeah, the number is six. Um, And what can I say? One other I I don't mean to just like turn this into like a a myth busting in the comments thing. Somebody said something uh, a ways up like if you have, you know, they've they've got your loan information. Um, and that's, you know, maybe all they're going to need. That's probably not true. Um, they, because the specific thing that they, that you're going to need to demonstrate if you qualify for this plan is uh, income. It's that you're not above the income, the kind of phase out income thresholds, um, which, which a lot of, I mean, just, just because you have a federal loans doesn't mean they have like granular detail. I mean, the IRS does, but you know, they don't talk to each other um, about how much you're making. So basically like, unless you are already in a plan uh, like where you're already making like income-based payments um, to service your federal loans, you will likely need to apply and like furnish that information in early October. Again, assuming all of this uh, goes through as, as planned. Okay. So we have a good question from a Crowder uh, that's perfect for Declan. What reforms would you be in favor of in terms of either student loans or lowering the cost of college? And Declan and I just co-authored a piece for Deseret News Magazine. Um, we actually wrote 8,000 words and they cut it down to 3,000. So we have 5,000 words to talk about tonight with you. <laughs> Thoughts on this? Well, first, I'd been operating under the assumption that it was pronounced Deseret News for the past two months, but I guess it's not. Is it Deseret? I don't know. Pretty sure it's one Desiree. Of the, one of the two. Desiree sounds like a <laughs> drag queen stage name. But, yeah. um, All right. Well, you learn something new every Dispatch Live. Um, 
I've been yeah, to all so, 50 I states mean, and I think I've dealt with the major newspaper in every single one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So in, in terms of, you know, things that we can be doing to uh, address this problem, I think most people who study this space, who who have been kind of having these debates for years, what was the biggest frustration to them with the Biden administration's plan here was that it was kind of blanket cancellation with no underlying adjustments to uh, that accompanied it. So it's just, you know, we're clocking it back out at zero. And then the same problem is going to build up again over the next five, 10 years. And we're going to be right back where we started. So, it, you know, if if you were going to do a kind of get out of jail free card moment, that would be the moment to actually institute some of these, uh, you know, broader reforms and and things like that. But at the same time, you know, talking to people uh, who who are very involved in this, there's much more that individual schools can be doing on on uh, a one on one basis versus kind of a big federal overhaul. That's you know things like uh, charging different amounts uh, of tuition for different majors because you. Um, you know, you have different expected earnings coming out of that. People will be graduating with less debt. They're kind of the people who take on the most debt to, for the most expensive major will in all likelihood be the most um, able to repay it down the line. Things like um, barring schools from uh, uh, enrolling students or barring students from using federal funds, uh, federal loans at schools that don't have a high graduation rate that aren't, um, you know, that's where students have a high rate of default after, after graduating, uh, that kind of incentivizes schools to make sure that their students are getting an education that's actually worth something, um, and, and helping them to graduation. There's a lot of these, or it'll uh, incentivize schools to not take students who won't graduate or take risks on students. Yes, that, that, who are too. Poor. that too. Yeah. Uh, so, so the most surprising part on the reporting for me was two things. One, I really went into this thinking that the administrative cost at schools had just risen exponentially and that, you know, for every professor, there were now like 25 people in the, um, you know, civil rights, civil liberties uh, building. And universally, what we heard from um, these university presidents at state schools, at small private schools was like, no, I mean, yes, some of that has happened, but it actually has very little to do with the tuition rises. Um, and that, in fact, there was just sort of a universal law of economics going on here, which was that um, because there were student loans, the uh, cost was no longer the deciding factor in colleges. It was going to be something else. And so then there was this, there still is this race of what that something else is, because college is going to sort of cost what it is. You're going to take out loans. It's all sort of play money to a 17 year old. Um, and so instead it was facilities. Yeah. Amenities. The dorms are incredible compared. Oh my God. Like it's insane just compared to, you know, when I went to college, um, and they said, there's really, you can't then compete if you don't keep up with the Joneses with all of that stuff. And it's not about whether you're going to get a job after school. How much will that job pay? Um, and so the second thing that I really thought was interesting was the concept of just a government mandated transparency down to the major. You know, if you major in underwater basket weaving, um, for those people who graduate with that major, they are making zero dollars. 
Uh, and then you'll find out that the people who are graduating with an engineering degree are making, you know, a lot of money or even a philosophy degree. It's not all going to be hard sciences or something. It's going to turn out that philosophy majors probably actually do very well in the market because they go do other stuff like going to McKinsey, like Declan or law school or whatever. Um, and, uh, I didn't work at McKinsey. Don't put, don't put that slander on me. Yeah. Just You're just like, the kind of person who went yeah. to McKinsey. That's yeah. And like, <laughs> I give off that vibe. Yeah. There's still time. That, that might be even worse if I give <laughs> off the vibe without even getting the salary. <laughs> I'm not shaming that. I work at McKinsey. If any of you out there are McKinsey hires, you know. And if people want to read a book on this. The president of Arizona State University has written two really good books on it. And I'm not remembering his name or the name of the book. So hold on a second. Um, we also talked to uh, Mitch uh, Daniels, obviously, at Purdue, because Purdue in some ways has gotten like all of the credit um, for holding tuition steady for 11 years. In fact, the the real cost of tuition has gone down at Purdue uh, over 11 years, but Arizona State has been doing really cool stuff as well and should be getting more credit. Um, yeah. Hybrid programs online versus in-person, you know, if, if you want to pay less, do ha half your time on campus, half of it uh, online. It, it was so funny, you know, Sarah, you did the interview with, with Governor President Daniels, um, but like, the question of, you know, how did, how did you keep tuition steady? And he's basically like, when we wanted to spend more money on stuff, we cut other stuff so that we didn't just increase costs everywhere. It's like, it, it, it and that's such a radical idea in, in the higher education space. Like you don't need to do that because federal loans are just going to come in and backfill whatever, uh, whatever, you know, increases that, that we want to provide to students. And so there's not really any incentive whatsoever to, uh, to is, so I want to ask like this group here, cause you're, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sarah. Real uh, quick. No. So the book by Michael Crow is called the fifth wave, the evolution of American higher education. Um, and again, uh, highly recommend all of his books actually. Um, and Jonah, I wanted to know your thoughts. Cause you always have creative thoughts about carpet bombing places. So first of all, I just want to say I'm sure the book is great. I don't mean any disparaging. I just the I, the hackles on the back of my neck go up whenever I hear an ordinal number in the word wave in the title of any book. Um, just the third wave, fourth wave. It Tofflers and Gingriches come to mind, and it's not great. But I'm sure this is a wonderful book. Um, did you guys look at Brian Kaplan's stuff at all when you were working on this, Brian Kaplan? Um, I believe Mercatus, libertarian economist guy, brilliant guy, he wrote a book called The Case Against Education. And this is sort of what I want to ask is uh, he's done a deep dive on on the data. And I didn't say that just for the alliteration. Um, and it turns out that, you know, if you get the eight semesters in a normal undergrad education, right? Um, if you do seven and a half at Princeton, and then for whatever the reason, family emergency, medical emergency, whatever, you don't get the diploma, but you got seven eighths of the education, the returns as a percentage of what you would get if you just got that last piece of paper are minimal. And so one of the questions he likes to ask is, if you were taking a survival training, if you if you had to like live on a deserted island, 
would you rather the degree that says you completed the course or would you rather complete the survival training course without getting a degree? And only this group that social scientists call morons would say they would <laughs> like the degree without the training, right? But all of the talk we get in American culture about how important it is to get your college degree and how important it is to go to college and all that kind of stuff, it turns out that the actual education that you get has very small returns on investment. Most people do their learning on the job, not from their, their schools. And if you don't get the sheepskin, you actually don't get the return on the investment. So what the what the sheepskin gives you is it's a signal. It's essentially a meritocracy shibboleth that says you were you're good at taking tests, you're good at filling out applications, and you hung out with the kinds of people that we don't mind hanging out in our business. But it doesn't, and, and, and there's some exceptions to this, you know, like organic chemistry, like they probably get more out of your college education in organic chemistry than you do in the kind of stuff that we studied. Um, but I increasingly think that the higher education system isn't what we think it is. It is a giant, basically class and, and philosophical orientation filtering system for the meritocracy and has less to do with education and therefore is much less democratic than we think it is. It is, is a subsidy for certain kinds of people from certain kinds of families. So I think that's true. And quick plug for our book club. Um, I'm interviewing our September book author tomorrow, actually, Rucker Bergman. He has written a book called Humankind. And it's basically that um, we are taught to think that humans are by nature uh, selfish, maybe evil, et cetera. But in fact, humans are very kind and generous by nature. And what makes them not those things are sort of these external societal factors, et cetera. Um, and <laughs> one of the interesting things that he has talked about, both a little in the book, but externally, um, he's been sort of described as a radicalized Malcolm Gladwell. Um <laughs> he like took on the people at Davos and he's like AOC for a Dutch philosopher and he's 30 years old or something. I'm really looking forward to talking to him, but I've been hearing this more and more. And I guess I've always thought it too, which is what is the, the inherent ethical value of a meritocracy? I didn't, um, earn a lot of that meritocracy. I was born with a high IQ compared to, you know, the bell curve of humans. I didn't work on that. Now I did all these other things like once I had that, but like by virtue of being sort of born as I was, how different is that than being born into aristocracy or being born with a certain skin color? Um, you know, you can capitalize on it to some extent. And I think that there's a very interesting growing contingent on the far left questioning the whole entire idea of having a meritocracy, which I just, from this like very meta high philosophical perspective, I find really interesting because, you know, when you think about it, there's going to be a lot more people in the losing on the meritocracy than there are the extreme winners of the meritocracy. That's why the best system to put, to put into play my completely not useless history degree 
is uh, is the, the 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 pure democracy of the ancient Greeks. Just throw everybody's name in a hat, and it's like, all right, you're in charge now. Go make us some laws. So that is actually what Rucker Bergman thinks we should do a version of, and he talks about a small municipality in Venezuela that did something like that, even during the Hugo Chavez era. Um, and there was a town in Brazil that did it, and they do pure democracy um, and actually have control over the budget. And, you know, it's worked out relatively well for those small places. <laughs> yeah, we're all, I mean, we're all just puttering along, right? That's I mean, right. like, what? how 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 do you solve for any of it? I mean, the, the, the actual, like, legitimate argument for why, you know, a meritocracy is better than, like, those other things you mentioned is 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 primarily for efficiency purposes. It's probably like the kind of the top line, like function of society. Like there's, there's more to go around everything like that, but obviously that does not solve for the problem that you're actually talking about, which is the fairness of distributing yeah, within, Jonah, within the pie. Right. Why is a meritocracy morally superior to those things? Uh, okay. So got to separate two things. This whole here, time right? I was reading this book, by the way, I so desperately wanted to force Jonah to read it. Because it's basically like, hey, communism isn't such a bad thing, not like political communism, but more like intersocial communism. Well, I mean, okay, so first of all, <laughs> we are all here communists, right? I mean, we gotta get we gotta keep our Gemeinschaft and our Gesellschaft straight here. We are all communists in our own families. Exactly. That's right? that's all he was saying. Like yeah. intersocially, we are communists, yes. Right. Uh, we if you have two kids, you don't charge one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more for their food than you charge the other. In fact, you don't charge them at all because within the family, it's from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? So it's like not, it's not meritocracy based in a lot of sense, except meritocracy of effort. If one kid does all his chores and the other one doesn't, you reward the one who does the chores. The So there are real problems. For I want to make a moral case for it, but I, I want to avoid it too because like, I think the moral case for meritocracy in many ways is the moral case is analogous to the moral case for democracy. You could make a really interesting moral case for democracy, but in reality, the moral case for democracy is just works better than the other systems. It is the best hedge against the worst outcomes. Once you say we're not going to have a meritocracy, what is the new standard that you are going to introduce? The nicest people get the rewards of society? Um, the tallest people, the most religious people. Wait, does Andrew the, think he's the nicest? No, he's not the tallest. That's I think I'm lot. above median nice. <laughs> I, I like to think that about myself. I don't know. I I, um, I, I feel better about my niceness than I niceness than I feel about my smartness. Midwest would rule the world. Um, <laughs> but like I don't mean passive aggressive niceness. So yeah, I just feel like anyone who's like niceness. That's me. I am the niceness. Like it is. Yeah, I'm a I'm friendly nice guy, is. Sarah. I don't know what. To, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend. Who raises their hands? <laughs> Run around high fiving people. I'm the most yeah. humble. Yeah. I, um, and so, it, as an alternative, it's the least worst kind of system because it is the best hedge against graft tribalism, favoritism, and all sorts of different ways. The problem that we have in this society, and I feel like I'm just doing liner notes from the remnant, but is that what we call meritocracy isn't always actually meritocracy. It Re is- Real meritocracy has never been tried. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of that, right? It's like, look, I mean, one of the things I always try to impress upon college students is that complexity is a subsidy. And the more complex you make the rules, the 
more you are rewarding people with the kind of either financial capital, intellectual capital, social capital, political capital, whatever it is, you're making it easier for those people to work their way to navigate around the rules and the people who don't have access to various forms of capital get left behind. And I think this is my point about the the eight semesters of Princeton. If you only do seven, you don't get all the merits, even though you may have been the best student at Princeton until you're the final semester. And I think that the way you actually have a real meritocracy is, um, is getting rid of the complexity, simple rules for complex society. And that way you can be like a lot of my intellectual heroes never actually did any coursework for their PhDs. They just wrote really interesting books and got a PhD for it. I mean, uh, it's like Seymour Martin Lipset or, you know, all those kinds of guys. They just came in the GI Bill. They went to college and they wrote interesting books and they got PhDs. Now it is all about whether you know they're all the right shibboleths, whether you know they're all the right code words. The reason why Asians don't get it, get rejected from places like Harvard isn't because they're not smart, isn't it because they don't do well on tests, is because they don't know how to talk about social justice in the right way to their admi- the, the, the admissions counselor. That's not a meritocracy. That is a that is a, a, a political system that rewards people who know how to use the right words and check the right boxes. And so I don't want to defend that. Oh, that was the end. I thought, <laughs> I don't want to. Oh, I could go on, but I could, um, <laughs> I could see you're starting to bleed from the ears. And I said, no, I no, I was, I was actually taking notes <laughs> what you were saying. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Never do that. <laughs> just, uh, just ask for an email, woman. I'll send it to you. <laughs> just it's like college, right? Like maybe if I just write this down. Um, Declan, do you have any thoughts on the meritocracy? Uh, well, I was I was busy. I was clipping Jonah saying we are all communists, and I'm going to sell that to the Federalist <laughs> and make a whole lot of money uh, on this on this live stream that thousands of people are watching. They don't pay as um, well as you'd think. <laughs> Andrew's been clipping us for months. <laughs> no, I've been freelance for the Federalist before. <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um Jeff Oster by the way says I do a drinking game with Jonahisms and I'm already really drunk. <laughs> um, we still right. have we still have like 400 copies of the bingo sheet in the office from the 500th taping. Of the, uh, the remnant? Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we should just start handing those out to people on the street. I ran across those in the office the other day. I was unable to attend the 500th taping of the room, and I had no idea what it was that I was looking at. Um, by the way, I also am getting it was a great event. Just someone who's watching this at the gym, and I can't imagine something less like motivating to keep on that treadmill than this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so meritocracy. <laughs> sorry, Emily. Uh, all right, Declan. Shifting topics entirely from the macro philosophical to the very micro, the January 6th committee um, uh, postponed their hearing that was supposed to be tomorrow. And I thought it was really interesting because they said it was because of the hurricane. And there were sort of a few reasons that were listed. They have a member of the committee who represents um, a district in Florida that is almost certainly going to be affected by this, Stephanie Murphy. And... um, that's great that they want to postpone it for her. Mind you, like there's a zillion other committees having hearings tomorrow. It's not like Congress is at a standstill to wait for this, but I thought they were actually like oddly honest. And they said that they thought that the news would cover the hurricane more 
than the hearing. So they're just going to wait for the news cycle to be more favorable. And you know what? I, part of me is like, thank you. Thank you for not pretending that there was some other reason and that we should probably reward that type of honesty because it's very, very true. And there's nothing offensive about that. Um, good. Yep. We're going to pay attention to this hurricane for a couple of days and we'll pick up the politics later, I guess. But it does, like, to me, at least a little undermine what at least some of the stated purpose of the hearing was. <laughs> Which was not. Yeah, but the, the stated purpose of the hearing and the actual purpose of the hearing were obviously different. Um, yeah, it's like the sometimes know, it, they're really honest and then sometimes they're not. And the stated purpose, yeah. they were less really honest. And then the delaying the hearing, they were really honest. Sorry, this hair is like the, doing weird stuff. <laughs> okay, better. <laughs> Next. The, the, the problem with that is they've just opened the floodgates. Now every congressional committee is going to erase each other to delay their own hearings and we'll never actually have any. Um, yeah, I mean, it. the The goal is obviously to, um, there's a reason it's coming back, uh, you know, in September, just a couple months before the midterms. Uh, there's a reason that, um, you know, the ones that were in primetime were in primetime. It's because they want the most eyeballs as possible on this. And Andrew made a good point to me earlier today, we were talking about this, that, you know, it's, um, it, that might not matter for people like us who have been following this story closely for however long it's been 19 months something like that um that uh you know we don't it doesn't matter how many people see it we already know they're not rehashing a ton of new information it's kind of more aggregation um but in terms of you know telling a specific story that uh that they want the american people to know and and to kind of you know we're we're already starting to see uh uh rumblings about this the report that's going to be coming out of this committee and that's um I, I saw an article that it's the like most anticipated public uh, public access report um, in you know since the Lewinsky stuff and and the Star report in the '90s. So all these publishers are racing to see like how are we going to get people to buy our version of it? Uh, are they just jumping that, over uh, the Mueller report in that. That's that's remarkable to me. <laughs> I can't believe that. Is that really is that true? Like they're like that you read something that that went all the way back to like the Star report for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just cause yeah, Mueller ended like, up being a nothing burger. Yeah. Oh, but, but the anticipation yeah. though, the I anticipation, mean, like, unbelievable. I would not even compare it to the star report, the anticipation for Mueller because of the news cycle that we have now in cable, you know, ubiquity that we didn't have then was way, way hotter for Mueller than it was yeah. pre star. But then of course the star report was released and everyone was like, Oh no, that is, um, I was going to say juicy, but I feel like that's a bad salacious salacious. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I do think that we've also seen, um, uh, Denver Riggleman who has a, a remnant staffer or remnant, uh, former guest has been making the rounds this week. Um, and, am I supposed uh, to see him as anything other than the villain at this point? How is he not the villain? I, that's. So yeah, what like, what is Declan he, so like straight morning dispatch style? What <laughs> what what are, what am I supposed to take away from the Riggleman thing? Because I've 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 strayed away from like doing a deep dive on it. He was a this is a former member of Congress from Virginia, I believe, um, who was working as a staffer on the the January sixth committee for I think about a year um, as, as they were kind of conducting their investigation. He's no longer working on the committee. And this week, you know, a day or two before the final hearing, he comes out and he's like, oh, I wrote a book about my time on the committee. 
Um, and here are all these, um, you know, allegations that you know, aren't, I haven't read the book, uh, so I don't know how how well sourced all of it is, but he's been going on all these talk shows, kind of promoting himself, promoting the book. Um, and it lends some credence, I think, to some of the criticisms of the committee itself that, you know, this isn't about per se finding the truth. It's about getting eyeballs. It's, um, you know, monetizing this. Jamie Raskin, who's a um, a uh, on the committee itself, I believe I saw he already has a deal lined up to write the foreword of uh, one of the paper copies of the of the report that's going to be coming out. So there, I think the committee overall, uh, the actual hearings themselves, they've done a good job of not over sensationalizing. Um, they presented it in kind of a, a calm and, and, and um, you know, not hyperbolic uh, manner. But you, you know, you have to be very, very careful to avoid even the appearance of, you know, uh, some of this self interest. Uh, and, and I think that there have been some slip ups on that part in the in the past couple of days. Uh, Andrew, we're getting a few questions about the Electoral Count Act and whether we think it'll go through. Andrew's face is like, what the? <laughs> I beseech you to ask someone else about the Electoral Count Act. There's not a thing I've paid less attention to. Um, I just, bet you that's not true. I bet. I bet <laughs> Jonah's tugging on his ear. Tied. Tied for last. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fine. I feel like if I call on Declan, Declan then has to take it, even though Declan may not have any thoughts on the likelihood of the Electoral Count Act going through. So Mitch McConnell came out and gave it a thumbs up. So what are the chances that it moves? Um, I think that either it's going to move before the election or it's not. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I actually bold I, prediction. I, I think, yeah, so uh, at, at the risk of outing myself, that is going to be a topic of tomorrow's morning dispatch. So I guess I actually know a little bit about uh, the Electoral Count Act. Yeah, McConnell came out uh, in favor of today. That makes 10 Republicans enough to uh, over over supersede. You mean a, there, are, a there, are 10, there are 10 individuals or McConnell counts as 10 Republicans? <laughs> like on a scorecard kind of thing. You include the liver the that he's eaten out of live people. <laughs> <laughs> of all the souls he's consumed, he counts for 312 votes in the Senate. <laughs> well, there, there is some truth to that, that if McConnell goes with something, he probably brings a couple more Roy Blunts and, and John Foons and whatnot with him. Um, but I, I think that there is now 10 enough to overcome filibuster. Uh, and it does sound like it's going to happen actually in the um, lame duck period, that they're not going to try and push they they have to reconcile some of the differences between the house and the senate version um that's they, so risky so I the mean, reason the lame duck is risky is that we don't know what's going to happen in the election you could end up with weird results tons of recounts all sorts of things that'll cause any one of those 10 republicans or just the body itself to have to sort of focus on something else i mean think about if you had left something to the lame duck in 2020 Ooh, I don't like leaving Not this to the lame duck. Dear senators, don't, either, but... don't do the lame duck. Do it now. Just <laughs> reconcile faster. One hard all-nighter, <laughs> it'll take care of itself. That's my advice. <laughs> um, all right, what other questions do we have? Sorry, that's what I'm looking at on my phone. Oh, uh, Eileen um, is a, a frequent commenter, etc., and she has... Um, oh, I'm sorry, not Eileen. Eileen, we already answered your question. Um, Krishna, this is for Jonah. 
I don't see many easy intro resources for conservative thinkers. For example, was looking for a good primer on Jaffa. Did National Review or anyone make anything like this? What are the good primers, Jonah, aside from all of Jonah's books? Um, I, 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 first of all, would pronounce it primer. But um, second really? of all, yeah, I would. I, I, I could be wrong about that. That's why I'm not no. getting oh, well, snooty. But um, uh, my friend Stephen Hayward wrote a book about Jaffa and 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 um, Walter Burns and their rivalry. And I think you could get a lot of like who was Harry Jaffa from a fairly sympathetic point of view. Keep in mind that the Jaffaites, the self-declared Jaffaites, most of whom I don't want to be too sweeping, a lot of whom are kind of nuts, uh, <laughs> did not like Hayward's treatment. But like, I think people who are not all in on Jaffa uh, um, or their ver- or the sort of Claremont version of Jaffa would find it very fair and judicious. Um, look, I, I like Matt Continenti's book a great deal. Um, I think it's it's a That's worthwhile, fun. I have my disagreements with some of it, which I've given full airing to, but I, I have enormous respect for Matt and for the book. I am still very partial to George Nash's The Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945. Um, I think it's a very good book. Uh, I think those are good. Yeah. There's another book called The Conservative Tradition in America that came out about 15 years ago. I think Wilfred McClay. It's very short, very easy introduction. I don't know if it's going to give you the, the, the weeds on the Straussians and Jaffa and stuff, but you can't trust anybody who writes about Straussians because you're not allowed to write about Straussians. So they clearly either speculating or uh, they're they're part of the cover-up. Uh, speaking of political movements, and I'm assuming this will go to Declan, but Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, Italy, what's going on? <laughs> Andrew, you're Italian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, no. Well, I can't do any one, one Wait, no, he's not. Allowed to mention two. that uh, Declan and Andrew were pickleball partners at our staff retreat, and one Which sounds dirty, but it's not. We mean the actual game of pickleball. They won the entire tournament <laughs> as partners, and I just their partnership on and off the court is really something to behold, and it's, it's like. Moving. It's the chocolate ice cream and the strawberry ice cream. And it just, it really worked. Uh, Thank you, Sarah. I'll follow follow my sword a little bit uh, for the Italy question. I do not want to be asked to pronounce anybody's name. Um, The Brothers Brothers of Italy party. There's a woman who's the head of that thing. She has a name. I don't know it. Maloney. Um, Becoming the new. Georgia Maloney. Thank you. Becoming the new uh, uh, prime minister of the country. There's been a lot of like, uh, Sturm and Drang about uh, how quasi-fascist or not she is. Um, I am extremely unequipped to answer that question because I have not dug into her like kind of policies and rhetoric. The one thing I have to say about her is that she's- So wait, just to be clear, Andrew took this question and all he was really able to tell us there was that he knows Italy had an election? No, I'm, I, I, have one, I have one thing to say and I was about to say it. Okay. You, have to, you have to clear your throat a little when you come up to a brand a new of, topic. Sarah. I don't know no, her no, name. No. I don't know if she's a fascist. <laughs> I know the country's shaped like a boot. <laughs> yeah, it's kicking the football, which I believe is Sicily. Olive um, oil. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. So she's become uh, the thing. The thing that I'm unequipped to talk about is kind of the left wing discourse about her, which is like 
to what extent is she sort of Mussolini light? But the right wing discourse about her, um, which I've been following a little bit more, is is basically she's one of these like kind of uh, European leaders who's leaning more into kind of like social identitarian issues. Um, little little bit of like Viktor Orban in there. Uh, guys who are like Orban curious are have been like saying a lot of nice things about her. She talks a lot about kind of like the importance of like. Um, it's the, the sort of like us versus them uh, uh, sort of mentality of us being kind of like the the common people and the families and the people who are pro-tradition and the people who are uh, um, pro-religion and, and all these things like that um, against the sor- sort of shadowy cabal of, you know, the, the, the wokesters and the left and the totalitarians and, and the, the thing that really gets the, the new right types uh, going is that she includes kind of like global financier, financiers, glo- global capital, the sort of big business in in that kind of uh, uh, cabal of enemies um, that she talks about. Uh, and it's, I mean, I don't know, it's nothing, it, for, for, from what I have seen, it's, it's, it's strange to see people like commenting like, um, having little takes like, oh, you know, like it's 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 amazing that the left is seeding this sort of like class talk to to uh, you know populists populists and popularists on the right, which is just kind of insane to me. I mean, like she sounds like Bernie Sanders with more like anti-trans stuff in there. I mean, it's it's just when 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 I see little snippets of her speeches about it's just kind of like okay it's it's the same sort of like class grievance but there's also a social element to that class grievance it's not pure money so um, oh, sorry, go ahead. no 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 that's really all that's the last even halfway interesting thing i had to say about that so uh, i agree or i share a relative lack of knowledge and expertise on what maloney thinks or believes okay, so and, I shouldn't but, have passed this off. We but, were about it in the morning to catch a thousand words yeah, I yesterday. But I, I, um, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I've, I've done my reading on all that. All, what I was going to say is just simply that as someone who spent like six years working on a book about fascism, um, I have pretty solid views about what Mussolini believed. And, um, I have to figure out where to write about this or how to talk about this. I, I'm generally much like the the Clinton scandals. I've spent a while now trying to not talk about certain other chapters of my life, and like liberal fascism is one of them. Even though I I've been perfectly honest about the parts of the book I stand by and the parts I don't and all of that. Um, but I listened for reasons probably having to do with original sin to like 25 minutes of Ari Melber tonight on MSNBC talking about Mussolini and what Mussolini believed and Mussolini this and Steve Bannon, Mussolini, yada, yada, yada. And full disclosure, Steve Bannon talked to me about making a documentary about my book, Liberal Fascism, which I walked away from because I thought he was bad news. So, but I've got threads within threads and all this kind of stuff. But that's what Steve Bannon wears, threads within threads. Well, that's layers upon layers, right? (laughs) all I'm gonna say is like the amount of the amount of things that people say about Mussolini, the number of things that people say about Mussolini that are just not true. I'm not a Mussolini defender, but like Mussolini denounced Nazism as 100% racism. He did not. There was no biological racism to Italian fascism until Hitler invaded Italy, took over Italy in 1938, and made Mussolini his bitch. And prior to that. 
like um, there were more Jews in the Italian fascist party than uh, um, than in the as a proportion of the population. Um, there were also more Jews in anti-fascist par- parties. My only point is, is that like this notion that like Italian fascism was this genocidal biological racism thing just isn't true. And the way people are talking about Mussolini with supreme confidence and Italian fascism with supreme confidence, the way that Egger was describing Maloney's views, very consistent with, with Mussolini's views about economics and populism and all that kind of stuff. And it's just very frustrating not wanting to get dragged into conversations about fascism while listening to people just pull various word, you know, cathedrals out of their nethers as if they are supremely confident about what they're saying. And it just, it's, 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 it, it vexes me. Joan, I have an important question. Um, when you were gesticulating, there was something in your hand. What was it? Uh, you'll know what it is. We cannot, we cannot let the, the masses know. So it's a a certain uh, gold coin. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I thought you were holding actually. Uh And I had a funny story that I I gave one of those gold coins to uh, the brisket Uh and I told him it was a leprechaun coin. And then Scott went down to Texas and was at the attorney general's office down there and got some like challenge coins, you know, (laughs) and gave them to Nate. And Nate was like, leprechaun coins. (laughs) (laughs) And now thinks all coins come from leprechauns. He doesn't know what a leprechaun is, but that's hardly the point. Um, And we should be clear to the audience, well, we can't explain where these come from or the forbidden mystery behind it. Uh, They're not, in fact, real gold. Just in case people think the dispatch is doing so well that we're just sort of (laughs) handing out, you know, real gold coins. To be so. um, crash yeah. landing into the 9 p.m. Uh, That's right. So my last question to each of you is about Halloween costumes. We're about to enter October. And uh, Andrew, what is your daughter going to be for Halloween? Oh, we've had so many fruitless conversations about this. We don't know. Do you, somebody out there in TV land, give us an easy like costume did, that a baby she dressed up last year when apart. she was two weeks old. No. no, no, I don't think so. Do you have a memory of that? I don't have a memory of that. What? I feel like no. you'd have a better memory <laughs> of it than me. Well, I thought you, I thought you were like calling back to, Hey, didn't you do this? No, uh, no, no, no. I don't, no. I don't believe we did. Jonah, what's the best Halloween costume either for you or Lucy? So I, I guess you guys don't know this, but like the Goldbergs did about 12 Halloweens in a row where we were different versions of zombies. <laughs> so we did, Flight at flight crew zombies, clown zombies, uh, princesses and princes zombies, uh, escape convict zombies, uh, clown zombies. Um, and then as my daughter like were really ahead of the zombie zeitgeist there, we were like, we were way into it. And our neighbors thought we were nuts. Um, our neighbors thought they were wearing a Halloween costume if they wore like a little button on their, you know, on their blue blazer. Um, but, um, then in around when my daughter turned around 14 or 15, she got really into professional theatrical makeup mm. and things got dark and weird <laughs> and like lots of like shards of glass coming out of your head and chicken bones that look like your real bones coming out of your skin kind of thing. And it got pretty hardcore. But um, so good ones. that's the Goldberg family tradition. Declan, best Halloween costume for your dog. Uh, 
we put Ozzy the pug in a tuxedo one year. I think that was James pug, James Bond pug. Um, so that doesn't feel like a Halloween him. costume. That feels like his evening attire. I mean, he's not a farmer. Uh, no, his his <laughs> evening attire is uh, he has a, a harness that has the Cubs logo on it. And then he has a different harness that has donuts on it. And they're for different purposes. But um, and then we've also put him in a vamp. We made him a vampire one year. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think a gingerbread man. He did not like that. He did not, not like the gingerbread man. Costume. Not to go all editor on you, but I think they're for the same purposes, but different occasions. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, my 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 favorite Halloween costume of all time, though, was when I was like two or three. My mom made from like felt a Superman suit, um, and I did it for like four straight Halloweens. I liked it so much that like you, gr- I grew and I it fit me worse and worse over the years. With those <laughs> pictures of it. So, it's a very mom if you're watching it's a very like um like weird mind of a child memory of mine to know that like for the first like seven years of my life my mom made me like very cool like from scratch halloween costumes of one kind or another like synchronized with my siblings or whatever but the halloween costume that burns in my mind as like the coolest one i ever had was the one year like she didn't have time to do that and i got like a 15 dollar like incredibly generic ninja costume from target i was like finally (laughs) i don't know so your year of high school oh go ahead sarah oh so um after nate was born in june uh, so for Halloween that year, um, the Mandalorian had really just come out. And so we were way ahead of the curve in doing a baby Grogu baby. And I, I've covered his car seat in foil. So, it, and then I put the top up. So it kind of looked like the baby Grogu carrier, um, and then got Scott a costume. So I think that's probably going to be his best costume probably for his whole life. Um, and then last year with his baby girlfriends, we all did Alice in Wonderland um, and he was the Mad Hatter, but the costume didn't really fit. And so his pants were kind of falling down, but then the shirt was too high. And so it was a very dark Alice in Wonderland, like the Joker style. Um, and this year I'm at a total loss. I don't know what to do. One of his baby girlfriends is going as Britney Spears from Hit Me Baby One More Time video with the like tied up Catholic school girl thing. <laughs> and I'm wondering whether- This is going to end up on like, libs of TikTok. I know. I mean- <laughs> I'm wondering whether to put him in an all jean, like jean jacket, jean, uh, jeans, and be Justin yeah. Timberlake escorting Britney to the MTV Music Video Awards. That's like my leading contender right now. I don't Extremely know. Extremely relevant cultural poll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And with that, uh, please provide suggestions for me and Andrew on what our kids should be for Halloween. Thank you so much for your support as a member and for joining us. I'm glad Emily left the gym. She just texted me to say she's out. Um, Congrats on your hour-long workout to this Dispatch Live, Emily. Uh, And thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Later. Make TV go away now. Nate is so awake next. (laughs)